Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. And our Bible reading today is Deuteronomy 12, the whole chapter. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. But you are to seek the place of the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and rejoice in everything you've put your hands to because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we hear today, everyone doing as they see fit. Since they have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance of the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you may live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. Nevertheless, you may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Both the ceremony unclean and the clean may eat it. But you must not eat the blood, pour it out on the ground like water. You must not eat in your towns the tithe of your grain and your new wine and olive oil, or the firstborn of your herds and flocks, or whatever you have vowed to give, or your freewill offerings or special gifts." Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns, and you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. Be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God has enlarged your territory as he promised you, and you crave meat and say, I would like some meat, then you may eat of it as much as you want. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name too far away from you, you may slaughter animals from the herds and the flocks the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you. And in your own towns you may eat as much of them as you want. Eat as them as you would, gazelle or deer, both the ceremony unclean and the clean may eat. But be sure you do not eat the blood, because the blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the meat. You must not eat the blood, pour it on the ground like water. Do not eat it, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But take your consecrated things and whatever you have vowed to give and go to the place the Lord will choose. 
Present your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God, both the meat and the blood. The blood of your sacrifices must be poured beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat. Be careful to obey all of these regulations I am giving you, so that it may always go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in this fire as sacrifices to their God. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. Now I invite Reuben to come up and share with us. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you this morning. Um, and thank you very much for that reading. It was a long reading um, and a really good chapter that we're going to get to uh, spend some time in this morning. Uh, really looking forward to, to sharing God's word with you. My name's Reuben and um, uh, I have been here once before a number of months ago. I realise not everyone here will know me, so let me just briefly introduce myself. I spend uh, my time mostly at the Adelaide University, and I am the Baptist chaplain there. Um, I, uh, so I, I work alongside um, evangelical students, one of the, the student uh, clubs at, at the university, and um, we have the, the great um, privilege, I suppose, the, the great opportunity to reach the 35,000 or so undergraduate full-time undergraduate students there with the good news of Jesus. And, um, and yeah, God's been doing some, some really great things across this year, and um, I'd love to, to uh, speak with you after about that, share some stories if we have a chance. But um, uh, the other thing is that uh, I have a wife and two young daughters, and we normally uh, attend uh, Broadview Baptist Church, so not, not too far away from here um, on, a, on a usual Sunday morning. But, uh, yeah, this is a, a wonderful uh, chance to be with uh, God's family just in a slightly different part of the world. So uh, do keep your, um, your Bibles open or your apps open in front of you. Um, we'll uh, also have, I think, most of the relevant uh, verses that I refer to on the screen as well, if you'd prefer just to sort of uh, listen in and follow along that way. Uh, but let me start by, um, actually, let me start first by praying and asking God for, for his help as we come to his word. So will you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that you have already addressed us uh, this morning as your word was read. Thank you for the way that you um, uh, provide so much help to us as we seek to live as your people. Uh, thank you for the, the great insights that you want to give us in terms of who you are and, and how it is we are to worship you. Um, so give us ears to hear this morning uh, all that you want to teach us, uh, all, all of the ways in which you want to um, uh, confirm and affirm the things we already do know to be true and also to, to challenge and, and maybe teach us even new things this morning and give us hearts that are willing to respond in just the way that will please you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so how do you, um, just to start things off, how do you react to the statement, everyone worships something or all humans are worshippers? How do you react to that kind of statement? I suppose in present company, many may agree with me uh, that this is true, but what do you think the average Aussie would say? Your neighbour, your friend at work, uh, whoever it is. It's hard to tell in some ways. I don't know whether you've ever asked that question of people just to see how, how they would respond. 
On the census, we are certainly seeing more and more people saying no religion uh, and things like that, but even the most atheistic and irreligious Aussies, I would suggest have some recognition that they still worship some things in life in some sense. The footy, their kids or wife, themselves, power, money, success, beauty, all those kind of usual things that we can, our hearts can become so enamored with, can easily uh, function in, in a way like, like a God, like a religion. And I think many people are at least aware of that, even if they wouldn't, wouldn't use the label. And that's, of course, before noting that many Aussies in our very multicultural society are spiritual in lots of different ways. They worship the God or gods of one religion or another or have some other kind of spirituality. The Bible, I would suggest, is very clear that all humans are worshippers at heart. It's central or core to who we are. God has made it to be this way. We can try and pretend it away but it's just how reality is. A couple of ways in, in the uh, Christian tradition that this has tried to be captured are firstly, Augustine, an ancient church leader, uh, said this, he said, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in thee. My summary of this summary of his quote uh, with older English, but the idea, I guess, is it's a way of saying that there is a God-shaped hole in every person's heart that is and can only ever be filled by connection with the God who made us and the worship of him. Even though that whole uh, can lead us to worship all kinds of other things aside from God. Or Calvin, a slightly less ancient church leader and slightly less optimistic as well, put it more negatively, but at the same point, uh, his, his summary of this idea is that the human heart is a, perpe- a perpetual factory of idols. And they both draw on the Bible's own analysis. So think of St. Paul in Romans chapter 1 when he is diagnosing what has gone so wrong with the world, such that Jesus had to die and be raised again in order to, uh, to restore relationship between us and God. His answer in Romans 1, it centers around worship. To him, people have become foolish, darkened in their understanding. They have replaced the true worship of the true God with things that are not gods, literal idols in this case, as well as worshipping things like creation, the creation rather than the creator, pleasure in particular, sexual pleasure is what he goes on to talk about. As you heard in the reading, the passage today has lots to say about worship. And so if it's true that all humans are worshippers, then this passage will be tremendously helpful for us because it aims to teach what true worship should look like. In chapter 12, we come to the beginning of the very long main section of the book of Deuteronomy. I understand we're in uh, the middle of a series. I'm dropping into something that you've been looking at for a while. And so running chapters 12 through 26 uh, is essentially a retelling or a re-educating about the law, which was previously given in Israel's story. Uh, It's the terms of the covenant between God and his people. And this section, the the teaching on the law, is where the book actually gets its name from. So Deuteronomy means second law and refers to the fact that practically all of the laws that we're going to come across uh, from this this chapter right through to chapter 26 are in many ways repeated from the original giving of the law to Israel. 
to that original Exodus generation who escaped or freed from Egypt. So let's take a look at what Deuteronomy 12 teaches the Israelites about worship as they are about to enter the land. I've divided my talk into two main parts in terms of what the chapter teaches, and I'm not going to be able to cover all of it exhaustively. I'm sorry, there will definitely be things you're like, what about that thing? I won't have time to cover everything, but the, the two, thing, two big things I am going to cover fall under the heading, firstly, of worship God alone, is one of the really big ideas that comes through, and secondly, uh, to unpack what worship of this one God looks like. Um, so we're going to kind of do it, uh, do it in that way. So firstly, worship God alone. Uh, remember, uh, the way into this is to remember, actually, if you've been here for uh, earlier parts of this series, to remember the Shema, a hugely important key to understanding both Deuteronomy and the true worship of God. So the Shema, chapter 6, literally means hear or listen. Uh, the words of the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Simple truth, right? Easy to remember. Massive implications. This chapter begins to play out the many practical implications of the Shema. Because there is only one God, what follows, well, a whole bunch of things follow, but firstly, uh, what follows as we open this chapter is the removal of all forms of rival worship the removal of rival worship. So in verse two, uh, look at verse two, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing, dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, wipe out their names from those places. The idea is that the land they're about to head into belongs to Yahweh, Israel's God. And so both the false gods and the people who worship those gods are being cast out or evicted from Yahweh's land. And the key thing to notice here is they are told not just when you go into the land, don't worship these gods, which in theory you'd think might be enough for them to say, not enough for God to say, but he, he does this because he knows what we are like. He knows what people are like, easily intrigued, uh, easily tempted and led astray. And so a little bit like we don't keep uh, chocolate in easy reach in our house, uh, this is a little bit like that. So too the Israelites must completely clear out any trace of rival religions and false gods from the land that they are entering. So no altars, no sacred stones, no idols, no high places is God's intention as they head into the land. They're not meant to go in and say, you know, look at this shrine and say, it's well built. We could repurpose it. Let's just change the sign on the front from Baal to Yahweh. Um, that's not what is on view here. They're to destroy and it will be replaced with worship the way God wants it to be done. It's all got to go. Uh, now, many of us, of course, will know how the story plays out. They don't obey this command as intended. And in fact, their disobedience does lead to disaster. The people are led astray by the worship of other gods. And if you think uh, forward to the stories in the book of Judges, for example, you'll know that it spirals out of control pretty spectacularly. 
But the logic behind the command is, uh, uh, is easy to see, isn't it? And uh, it's not simply actually just about their relationship with the one true God. It's, it also has this ethical dimension as well. Uh, we see in Deuteronomy 12 repeated, uh, these repeated appeals not to imitate. So in terms of learning how to worship God, he is clear with them. He says, don't look at these guys. Don't look at what they're doing and try and imitate them. Uh, in verse 4, for example, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. And um, right at the end of the reading, we heard in, in verse 31, uh, very clearly why they're not meant to do this. Uh, they're not meant to worship in that way for the ethical reason that it is just not going to be good for them, certainly not good for their children. Uh, that's brutal, wasn't it? The way that that, that passage highlighted the way um, that shockingly uh, their children of these other religions were offered as burnt sacrifices to their gods. Now, thinking forward to our own situation, uh, how does this apply or not apply? Obviously, we are not part of that generation waiting to physically enter the promised land, and so instructions to destroy shrines or dispossess peoples obviously don't apply, uh, certainly don't apply in the same way. Uh, this speaks in what we're reading in Deuteronomy 12, it speaks into a different period of history for God and his people, and the deal for us living this side of Jesus is, is different. Uh, than for them. But what continues to be just as true for them as for us is that, well, we too can be easily distracted into worshipping other things than God. We're easily influenced by the practices of those who follow other gods or no God. So does this mean that we try to establish a, like a Christian nation where only the proper worship of the true God occurs? Well, no, that, that doesn't seem to be the project that God is inviting us into. God, it seems to me, will do that. He'll bring about that state of affairs when Jesus returns. In this period of history, he's actually sending out people into the harvest of all the nations of the world in order to call, back, call people back to true worship while there is time. Um, so we're not, uh, we're not into making heaven on earth in our own timing. Uh, we are content to, to wait for God and his timing to, to come back and restore things to the point where there is only true worship. Uh, so that means that, it, yeah, it is fine to be tolerant and polite and respectful of people who think otherwise and have different beliefs and different ways of worshipping. But in our own thinking, uh, knowing, uh, knowing what God has taught here, knowing that it, it is based on our tendency to go astray, we must, in our own thinking, not buy into the worldly propaganda that for example, all paths lead to God. Uh, we must be con convinced and, uh, and convicted of the fact that there is only one who makes God fully known. He is the saviour of all people. A common story or parable that's told about this, that all paths lead to God, is this um, elephant story. I'm sure you've, you've seen it or heard it in one form or another, but uh, the idea is there's a, um, an elephant represents I guess the truth about God and there are various worshippers who blindly are just feeling this elephant and one feels a leg and says, oh, God's like a, a trunk and another feels the nose and it's like, oh, God's like a rope. And have, you've heard this story before? Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, you can understand the point that it's trying to make. The problem is, it's just so frustratingly pretentious in terms of the person trying to tell the story. 
You know, it's commonly told, but I think the only people who believe this are the people who don't worship a God. Uh, with small exceptions, none of the worshippers of any of the world religions believe this to be true. The ones who actually practice say no. They ask a Muslim and a Jew, we're not worshipping the same God. The thing that really annoys me about this illustration is just how superior the person telling it implies that they are. In telling this story, it suggests that you, the one telling it, are the only one who can see everything completely. You're the one who can kind of stand outside like we are, looking at this whole picture, and are able to tell all of the, the worshippers that they're so narrowly and um, self-interestedly blind. It's kind of offensive when you think about it that way, isn't it? Somehow, there is one who magically has access to the truth that no one else can see. Uh, so I would just say that this story is both pretentious and wrong. We should not buy into this way of thinking. So we need to be clear in our own thinking and embrace uh, the Shema for ourselves. Right? Hear, O church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we must continue to be on guard about syncretism in our own lives and in our own worship practices. Syncretism is that idea of blending two things. So a bit of Christianity, a bit of, uh, a bit of consumeristic materialism, uh, a bit of Christianity, a bit of treating health professionals or politicians as though they're gonna be our saviors, a bit of Christianity and some new age spirituality or, or whatever it is that we might try and blend in a way that doesn't actually reflect the truth of who our God is and his glory and splendor and uniqueness and the way he's called us to relate to him. There are so many ways we can fall into this trap because we are surrounded by it uh, and we must assume that we are no better than the Israelites. Uh, so that drives us to depend on God for help with this and for each other. We, need to, we actually need to be helpful to each other, don't we? Uh, to call us towards this kind of faithfulness to God. The second implication, second implication that flows from there being one God is that uh, worship involving sacrifices, uh, in this case animal sacrifices, we're told is to occur at the one place of God's choosing. Uh, so that's the other theme that comes forward really strongly in this, in this passage. It's repeated a number of times, but look at verse 5, where we read, uh, you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. So um, instead of worshipping whatever local gods uh, or, or God in your region, like the Canaanites did, they would have just a little local uh, shrine, a bit like the corner shop, I suppose, where you would go and do your worship. Uh, one implication of there being just one God for Israel is that he also wants there to be one place where they gather for worship. Because fellowship with him is so important. He wants them to be in his presence and he's determined that he will set his presence, his name in one particular place. Uh, so God's inviting them into, into worship, into fellowship with him at a place of his choosing. This is a way, I guess, of uniting all the tribes, although they live in different parts, uh, uniting them into common worship of the one God at his designated place. What's really interesting about this is that Yahweh gets to set the terms for where and how he is worshiped, not individuals, based on what is easy or preferable for them. So verse eight says, uh, not like you do 
today as everyone sees fit. It's not just based around individual preference and what might be what might be comfortable or convenient for them, and also it's not the priests or the kings who get to set the terms here. In ancient Near Eastern societies, the role of king and priest were often very intertwined. Often the king was the priest or saw themselves as divine in some way, and so uh, religion and politics was very tied up, and also the place where you go to worship was often next door to the palace. not so for, uh, for Israel, at least in, this, uh, in the way this is talking. God is actually setting the, the agenda here. And um, uh, even though, like if you think a bit longer, a bit, a bit further along in the story, even when Israel is in the land and they have a king, and King David thinks maybe we'll do this thing a little bit like all the other ancient Near Eastern kings do, and I'll build, a God, I'll build, I'll build God a house right next to my house, what does God say to David? It says like, thanks but no thanks. That's not actually how it's going to be. Um, You're not going to build me a house. He actually flips it and says, I'm going to build you a house as in a dynasty. And it's actually going to be for your son Solomon to build me a house. Uh, We're still going to play by my rules. Um, This is kind of the dynamic in terms of how God relates to, to Israel. The point is God gets to call the shots. Now, again, how does this relate to us? Uh, The thing I want us to notice for now and remember, because we'll come back to it, is uh, Deuteronomy uses this specific term for where his people are to worship him. Did you notice what it was? What is the repeated phrase when, uh, as we're reading through, God says, you are to worship me at the place, is the particular phrase, without actually saying yet where that place is or where that place will be. That's important. We'll come back to it soon. Uh, It will eventually take us to Jesus, um, but I want to save that for the end. Um, But the only other comment I want to make uh, in in this point is that uh, I think there is an encouragement here to be careful to keep thinking, uh, what kind of worship does God want from us rather than what is convenient for me? Um, What kind of worship does God want from us rather than just what is convenient for me. It's not a major part of this passage. It's something we noted on the way through that they're told not just to do it in the way that everyone pleases. Um, So I think this should at least just get us thinking about how this chapter relates to uh, some of the different forms of church that we've been forced to experiment with over the last um, 12 to 18 months. Uh, Online church, very necessary at some times, very useful as well. Um, But gathering in person... I suspect is so much closer to God's intentions and so much better for us as individuals and as a community, even though it may be less, maybe the less convenient option. Um, so there's probably something there just to, to worth, uh, that's worth reflecting on and to keep thinking about for, uh, for us as well going forward. Okay, so let's, um, let's move now to thinking about, uh, so we've talked about how uh, there is just uh, one God, one way of worshipping him uh, that, that's been set up here. But now let's think about what God's way of worship looks like. And according to Deuteronomy 12, I can see three main points. Firstly, worship is responsive, worship is socially inclusive, and worship has an open future. Uh, so we're just going to talk about each of those three uh, relatively uh, briefly. Okay, so uh, it's just a taster of what we could say, but hopefully enough to get us thinking and um, I wonder if you are meeting in community groups that might give you some ideas to go a bit deeper in during the week as well. So firstly, responsive. 
very key characteristic of Israel's worship of God is that it is meant to be responsive to what God has already done for them. Verse 6 is where I'm looking. Uh, Verse 6, there bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, and the list goes on. Verse 7, there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord has blessed you. And similarly, you can cast your eyes down to verse 10. Uh, 10 onwards, you see that God brings them into the land, uh, gives it to them as an inheritance to enjoy. And so the fruits of that land that he's already given them are the things that they use as uh, means of thanks and, uh, and engaging with God in, in worship. And what follows in both cases is the command to rejoice. Uh, Because of what God has done, uh, so they respond, and the response is one of rejoicing. Uh, This is a picture of engaging with God. It's one one where we see how massively generous God is. He delights in blessing his people. And his people, therefore, in turn, worship him with grateful thanks characterised as rejoicing. Uh, This is certainly a pattern that continues into Christian worship, isn't it? Uh, Yes, there are no sacrifices anymore because Jesus, the once for all sacrifice, puts an end to that sacrificial system that has been spoken about in this chapter. But still, we are to embrace the fact that nothing we offer to God is ever meant to be buying his favour. It's not, you know, if I do this, maybe God will bless me. No, the pattern for God's people has always been Because God has blessed me, so I respond. All we have comes from God, so anything we give is an act of thankful praise. This is the pattern that continues forward. It's really important that uh, that this drives our our worship and our our relationship with God. Uh, Second, the pattern of worship here is radically socially inclusive. Uh, So responsive, also socially inclusive. The picture of all the tribes uniting in worship of the one God at the place that God chooses has this beautiful equality about it. There is nothing in the descriptions here about priests doing special things, being the ones that are necessary to lead God's people, even though in the details that might play out. No kings leading, uh, no special figure like a Samuel or a Moses is on view, just all of God's people from the high to the low, gathered before God, enjoying the great privilege of being his people in his presence, experiencing his blessing. Uh, So verse 12, I think we can see this really clearly, but it's repeated a number of times through the chapter. Look at verse 12. Uh, There rejoice before the Lord your God. Who? You, your sons and daughters, your servants, and the Levites from the towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. You can see the same thing repeated in verses 18 and 19 as well. And in chapter 14, this picture, which we'll get to eventually, I suppose, um, chapter 14, the picture is filled out even more to include widows, orphans, and people displaced from other nations as well, there to join in uh, the celebration as well. Uh, Now, a detail that might not be immediately obvious uh, when we're reading about these sacrifices Um, particularly you hear about a burnt sacrifice, you might think, oh, that whole animal is just kind of 
incinerated, well, that's actually not what's going on. In most cases, the animal, the grain offerings, they're not usually completely consumed, but form the basis for a, a banquet meal. Like, you actually get to enjoy them. The worshippers get to share in the meal um, that is offered. And so uh, what's going on here is that uh, everyone has to be invited to the party. It's for you, for your children, for your servants, for the Levites, for the orphans, for the widows, for the displaced people. Everyone, as they come to worship, gets to join in the party. Isn't that just a great picture of unity and sharing? Uh, It makes an ethical demand on them as well, doesn't it? it? It means that no one must get left out. Everyone who is part of the people of God stands before God as an equal and gets to share equally in the blessings that come from his hand. There are obvious connections to the way the Christian church must continue to express this same unity as we gather as the people of God. There's to be no favoritism in the church. I think of the way James, the book of James in the New Testament speaks at length about that. And there is to be a focus on making sure that we care for each other and no one gets left out, especially the poor and the marginalized. Uh, Think about um, the book of Acts at various points or in 1 Corinthians 11 would be a great uh, entry into a real challenge uh, that an early church faced around this kind of um, call uh, this ethical call to be united as they stand before God and, not to, make, and to make sure people don't get left out. Okay, so responsive, socially inclusive, and lastly, has an open future. Lastly, worship in Deuteronomy 12 has an open future. I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, we noticed before that the command in Deuteronomy 12 uh, is you must worship at the place you, the Lord your God chooses, Um, So that little phrase, the place that's used over and over again here. But where that place is specified, where that place is, is not specified in in chapter 12. And so by speaking of the place where God will be worshipped, where he will set his name and his presence, signals that there is a kind of open future about where that place will be. It signals that this is part of a story which is yet to be told. As we stand at Deuteronomy 12, Um, We're waiting to find out how that place is going to be specified. It signals that things can change as well. So as they enter the promised land, for some time there is a shrine set up at at Shiloh. Um, That's the arrangement for a while. And eventually, as I mentioned before, that uh, Solomon builds a more permanent place in Jerusalem, the temple. But with that idea in mind, that the place actually signals an open future, I guess the big question for us today is where are people meant to worship God now? Is it a particular place? A certain temple? A special kind of building? Do you have to go to a a proper church in order to connect with God? Um, I presume because we're meeting here we don't think that, but it... How would you actually answer that question? Well, let's finish by seeing how Luke, in his book, in the New Testament, helps us answer this very question. 
Uh, lots of places I could have gone to, but I really love this story and the way it um, so beautifully illustrates this point, I think, in, a, in a, maybe a subtle way, but um, I, think, uh, I think it'll come through pretty clearly. So uh, Luke chapter 17, and I'm looking at verses 11 to 19. I'll have it on screen, but yeah, if you do want to flip forward, Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Okay, so key background, Jesus is in the northern part of Judea, uh, Samaritans from Samaria, uh, the cross-racial remnants of the northern tribes of Israel. So Jews and Samaritans, they uh, intend to worship the same God, Yahweh, but they do it at different locations. The Jews think the place, as in the place that we're that God's commanded his people to, to, um, to worship, they think the place for the temple is, well, the Jews, for them, it's Jerusalem, and for the Samaritans, it's in their own region. And this is a great source of tension between them. Then verse 12, as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. All right, so we're thinking, where are these people from? Are they from Judea or Samaria? We're on the border, it could be either. And so, as Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priests, we also should think, which priests? Is it the Jerusalem priests or is it the priests in the Samarian region? We're not given the detail. But then verse 15, one of them said, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. What's happened is that this man has had a revelation. Instead of heading for either temple, he does a U-turn and heads back to Jesus. And he is praising God. And look at the next verse and think, what does this tell us about what this man has discovered about where the place is that you now go to worship God. Verse 16, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. So where now is the place that God is worshipped? It's at the feet of Jesus, isn't it? The extraordinary thing in this episode is that the Samaritan is the one who gets where God's place now is. No longer do we worship the Lord in a particular place or a particular building. The place has now become a person. Jesus is now God's temple. And so it is to him and at his feet that we offer our thanks and praise to God. Verse 17, Jesus asked, we're not all 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? So Jesus explicitly says, you've got it. This is right. I am the place. He said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So Jesus is the new temple. Okay, so there we go. Um, Big ideas from Deuteronomy 12. That's where I want to kind of uh, finish today, wrap up. But the big ideas from Deuteronomy 12 that we've covered just to help us um, kind of think back over over where we've gone. One God, uh, and so one place to worship him. 
and the shape of that worship is responsive to what God has done, radically socially inclusive, uh, but most importantly, it points us forward to Jesus as the fullest and final place where God will be present with his people and where his people will uh, continue to offer their praise and their thanks. All right, so uh, let, me, let me pray as we, as we conclude that and um, I'm gonna uh, hand back to the band, I believe. Uh, so let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much uh, for just how generous and good you are uh, as the one true God, uh, for the way that you invite uh, your people here in Deuteronomy 12 to, uh, to know you and to be able to worship you properly, um, for the way that you know uh, how our hearts can go astray and so warn us, um, for the way that you um, give us uh, reason, both reason and, and, uh, and capacity to, uh, to thank you for all that comes from your hand. Um, we particularly thank you for Jesus and for the way that this story, um, just at the beginning here of Israel's journey into the land, um, is just the most wonderfully open story and, and one which, as it unfolds, leads us right to the feet of Jesus. And so as we uh, seek to live our lives, help us to be like that Samaritan who recognises uh, that your place is now a person. And so, Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for all that you have done and all that you've given us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.